Hi there, welcome to MLEX's podcast. Every week we have a chat about the top regulatory stories that are making waves with the assistance of our team of reporters in every corner of the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor and we've got a lot to get through today. In just over 15 minutes time, we'll be crossing to Jakarta for a most incredible story, the death by a thousand cuts of Indonesia's anti-corruption enforcer, the KPK. The agency has dealt with external enemies before, but this time it appears that the enemy is within. These are extraordinary developments and our correspondent Jet Damaso Santos is standing by to have a chat. But let's kick things off this week with a courtroom drama that has been years in the making. Earlier this week, 11 jurors in the southeastern Australian city of Melbourne returned a not guilty verdict in the first jury trial involving competition offences in the country's recent history. In fact, it was the first criminal cartel prosecution since the early 1900s. What's significant about the country care verdict in the Federal Court of Australia is what it tells us about a much larger criminal cartel trial scheduled for next year in Sydney, involving three banks, ANZ, Deutsche Bank and Citigroup, with a high-profile immunity witness as well, JP Morgan. What's at stake here is the ability of federal prosecutors to bring charges under the country's 2009 criminal cartel legislation, And that's why MLEX has been covering the case in such detail since it first appeared in a lower court in Melbourne some three years ago now. Our senior reporter covering Australia and New Zealand, Laurel Henning, is based in Sydney but has made Melbourne her second home of late. And I'm in the slightly unusual position of having done quite a bit of reporting on this as well, purely because I'm based here in Melbourne, so I'll be chiming in where appropriate from time to time. Laurel is with us now and uh, Laurel it might be best for you to tell us something about the background of this case and its uh, basic elements. Okay so the charges themselves were laid back in 2018. The ACCC or sorry I should say the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission announced these charges in 2018 and that the federal prosecutor would be taking the case on its behalf, which it has to do for these criminal matters. Um, This was the first case uh, of its kind, the first ever time that criminal cartel charges had been laid against an Australian company and the individuals themselves had faced that similar charges that if they had been found guilty this week could have landed them in prison for a maximum of 10 years. The charges themselves related to allegations of cartel conduct involving assistive technologies. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean um, beds, mattresses, wheelchairs and walking frames that have been used in rehabilitation centres or aged care facilities. And it's worth a mention here that Country Care itself is a relatively small family run Uh, company based in the city of Mildura, which is actually hundreds of kilometres or miles for our American listeners from Melbourne, where this court case actually played out eventually. But James, you were covering it in its earliest stages. Now, the charges originally were very large in number. So can you explain a bit how they ended up getting narrowed down to the eight that we saw put before the jury? Well, yeah, the early list of charges uh, back in the Melbourne Magistrates Court was indeed extensive. That got narrowed down to just eight Um, as it made its way to the federal court. Now, I won't bore our listeners with every single charge and every detail of those charges, uh, partly because it's become a bit of a nightmare. We've been following these things for so long. But they essentially referred to submissions made by Country Care and the two accused men, whose names 
are Robert Hogan or were Robert Hogan and Cameron uh, Harrison um, as part of a tender process involving both a federal Australian government department and state government, uh, a state government agency in the eastern state of New South Wales, of which Sydney is the capital uh, city. I should say that there were multiple um, multiple uh, tender processes here. It wasn't just the one. Uh, now, the question is whether Country Care colluded on prices both within and outside those tenders uh, with other retailers of uh, disability aid equipment, which you outlined so eloquently before. Um, and as you know, this um, question uh, sounds very straightforward, uh, but the reality is that Country Care had a subcontracting and a supply relationship with retailers across Australia, in particular in regional uh, parts of Eastern Australia. Now, the reason for this has now been proven to have been a legitimate one, and that is that... Um, the submissions to the government tenders that were made by Country Care had to be national uh, uh, in the case of the federal government tender in particular because they required national coverage. So Country Care had to present itself as a network of retailers. Now, whether this relationship amounted to a joint venture or not, now joint ventures are covered by an exemption in Australian um, competition laws, that was part of the discussion uh, in court. And in particular... Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to interrupt you there and just highlight so yeah there's a difference there between country care the company and country care group which is the company plus all of its members yeah that's right and that that added another layer of confusion because um uh, because you were never entirely sure which one of those two they were referring to although they did go out of their way to say country care group um also country care group was not in itself a company it was indeed a loose association and that definition i think became particularly um, particularly important. Um, there was a particular relationship between Country Care and two of its suppliers that became central to the charges. The relationship with one supplier became central to the first six charges, with the other supplier became central to the last two charges. Now, some of the charges referred to Country Care, uh, the company, others referred to Hogan, others referred to Harrison. So there, there's a little bit of detail there. The evidence, though, focused on the communication between Country Care and members of this country care group, so the wider group, and this included a recorded conversation which became central to uh, to the discussion. There were also slides that had been presented at a conference and there were email exchanges. So just summing that up, what this really comes down to were allegations of both bid rigging and of price fixing, or attempts yes. to do so. So both of those allegations were in the context of these the whole process that led to uh, the tender submissions for these government contracts. Now, James, the case has obviously run on for, for years, but the trial itself way overshot the original six weeks that were allocated to it. Now, why was that? Yeah, so the, the timing has been uh, problematic. There's been delay upon delay. Some of those delays were linked to the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, others weren't. Um, some of them, some of these delays were procedural. Others were linked to the impanelling of the jury. We should uh, remind listeners that this was the first time that uh, an Australian federal court had had uh, to deal with a jury in I don't know how many years. I mean, they're not used to uh, dealing with juries, although I think all things considered, they they did a, a very good job. The, the jury was extremely 
well looked after. Um, as for the trial itself, it had been scheduled to last six to last six to eight weeks. You and I <laughs> planned ahead on that assumption, <laughs> but uh, the, 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 then uh, I think this week was what was it? The twelfth, the twelfth week. Uh, we entered into the twelfth week this week, and so yeah, I mean that that is in itself an interesting uh, time frame. What is even more interesting is the fact that the jury, um, after sitting through all of this stuff for twelve weeks didn't take all that long to make up its mind on the verdict. Yeah, that's right. Just just half a day. And even I was just thinking then when you were saying about 12 weeks, I spent six weeks in Melbourne covering this and that was only half of the trial, which is <laughs> mind-blowing to me. Um, but yes, the jury just took just half a day. And I think that led not only the two of us when we were exchanging messages at the time of the judge announcing that this, this verdict was coming, but also text messages I was exchanging with contacts of mine saying, this has been too quick, this has to be not guilty. Yeah, it, it had to be because obviously the, the the jury had made up its mind. My feeling is that these 11 jurors really had their baseball bats ready to go. They just wanted to take a swing at the federal prosecutors at the ACCC, which investigated the um, the, the the alleged cartel. Uh, and uh, so and and I think that's what happened. I mean, the, the fact that they would only take half a morning you know, just a few hours to make up their minds is is absolutely incredible. But Laurel, maybe you can walk us through how the ACCC reacted uh, to this verdict. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a, a little phone call with uh, with Rod Sims, the chairman of the ACCC on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after the verdict came through. And I asked him whether the verdict was a backward step for the regulator, because, you know, in, in this criminal cartel campaign that it's taken on, this is the first case, we keep saying that. And well, he was very reluctant to be to be drawn on that point of whether this was that significant of a setback. He said, you know, win or lose, we can't generalise. This is one case. Um, it would be wrong to make any kind of generalisation at this stage. And also that the regulator or the prosecutor on its behalf had faced many hurdles in getting this case to to the stage of, of a jury handing down its verdict. And that in itself, he was sort of selling as a as an achievement, basically, and that they would obviously respect the jury's decision. Mm, mm. Um, yes, I mean, uh, look, uh, obviously the ACCC would say that, um, and, <laughs> and right. that's what they've said. I mean, they've had a, a number of, of uh, very important defeats over recent years, and that um, tends to be their line. And it, look, it is true that with enforcement, uh, you do win some and you do lose some, and you always need to be pushing the envelope. We've seen this with regulators all around the world, but it's, it's I mean, it's, I just don't know how you could see this as anything other than a significant uh, setback for the ACCC because of, uh, you know, the, the the context, because of what appeared to be the central flaws of the case. Um, and, you know, the, then the ACCC will say, well, actually, we've already won three criminal cartel convictions in Australia under the 2009 legislation. But, um, you know, those were the three international shipping company cases that you covered so diligently, those those companies had pleaded guilty. There were not individual charges. The investigation had piggybacked on uh, international investigation. So they didn't really put the ACCC's ability to investigate criminal charges to the test, whereas the country care uh, case certainly did. And no doubt the ANZ case, which is coming down the track, is in the pipeline, will also put uh, the ACCC's ability to investiga investigate to the test. Yeah, and I think there's a big difference between admitting defeat too early when there has only been one of these these cases I can understand that perspective um, but also perhaps not quite saying publicly just how 
complicated. I mean, Sims said, okay, this was difficult to even get to the stage of a jury's verdict, and and I recognise that, but there was no comment on how complicated this these types of cases are going to be, or this one was for the ACCC to bring in the first place in terms of, you know, the challenges in its investigations. And I think that's where we've ended up with with a jury making a verdict on that investigation, really, on on the quality of an investigation. Yes, indeed. And we should also point out that the person at the centre of all of this, um, Robert Hogan, was 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 really furious at the end of this, as were his lawyers. I mean, you can expect some recalcitrance on the part of someone who's been uh, caught up in 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 a in a prosecution of this kind. But there was genuine anger there, right? Yes, exactly. So the the company published a pretty damning statement on this case and on the ACCC's investigative practices. Um, so Country Care founder Robert Hogan said that his his acquittal um, and that of his former colleague uh, Cameron Harrison was a, was a win for mum and dad businesses across Australia um, and that it all pointed to the fact that the ACCC's um, investigation itself was deeply flawed in terms of the approach it had taken to immunity witnesses in particular. We'll get onto that in a second. And that the whole thing was an absolute disgrace both for the regulator and for the prosecutor and that both should be held to account. Yeah, those are fighting words there. And the issue of the optics uh, and how the issue of being, a, uh, as they put it, a mum and dad, a mom and pop uh, business from a regional part of the country, that was part of the discussion. The fact that uh, Hogan was a boilermaker who might not have been very good with detail but was very much a big picture person but essentially honest, this was part of the narrative that... The defence lawyers, I think, were very successful in uh, bringing across uh, to the jury. And there's also the, the the central issue of the immunity witnesses and the character of the of one of the immunity witnesses in particular. Now, I know that you've written about this in the past, but uh, maybe just remind us of who the central witness was and why his uh, testimony became so problematic. Yes. So the central witness, there were two really key witnesses but the central immunity witness was um a guy called Andrew Cudahy whose business I believe actually he's the one with the Sydney-based business yes that's right and uh it's headquartered actually in my very suburb the suburb in which I live in Marrickville in Sydney so um Cudahy had made a secret recording of a conversation that he had had with with Robert Hogan and it was that recording that became quite a crucial piece of evidence in the prosecution but by the end of the trial he had been I mean, fairly discredited in the witness box. He admitted that he'd misled and withheld important information from the ACCC. And even the judge had told the jury that they should be pretty cautious with how they approached the evidence that he'd given. Yes. I think that particular comment from the judge was pretty pivotal. Yes. I mean, I was in court on the day. The judge said, look, firstly, you have to be very cautious as a rule with immunised witnesses because... You know, they they might have a wide range of motives for for providing that kind of evidence, and they might also be involved in the alleged cartel undertaking. But he also said, look, specifically on this case, you have to be doubly cautious because of all of the reasons that had emerged from the trial. So this was a direction for the judge. The judge was directing the jury to be very cautious about a person whose testimony was central to the first six charges, six out of eight charges. So I mean, that was uh, that was a real moment, a critical moment in, in proceedings, I think. Um, so this was the first time that we've seen an immunity witness in action in a criminal cartel prosecution. So the next question for us is how is all of this going to play out at the ANZ prosecution next year? Now, as you know, many of the law firms involved with that case had junior lawyers 
in court in the country care uh, um, proceedings taking notes. There's a lot of billable hours presumably done uh, in the name of research uh, in the lead-up to the big ANZ trial. So, look, we're, we're all trying to read the same tea leaves here, right? But what's your take? Well, I think the treatment of immunity witnesses by ACCC investigators has already been a part of um, the cross-examination that we've had at the local court stage of the ANZ uh, criminal cartel case. Obviously, it's now before the federal court, but it had quite significant hearings in the local court already. Um, and lawyers for the banks at that stage had questioned ACCC officials over their statement-taking practices, the lack of draft statements that were made available or ever existed even because the, the way in which they take uh, witness statements is they sort of overwrite as the statement develops the existing document. And so there are no existing drafts, the drafts just get written over. So I think that's pre- that's been a pretty controversial point in examination so far. Um, and also there have been allegations thrown at officials that they actually got JP Morgan witnesses to change their minds in the statements that they've given to, to the ACCC. And I think that will probably come up again in any eventual trial in this case. And um, there's also an overlap with the country care case in terms of whether some of the phone recordings that relate to the ANZ share placement that's at the heart of the banking criminal cartel, whether they ever even make it into evidence before before the federal court. And, and that's why, as you said at the top of the podcast, this was really this, this sort of dress rehearsal for the banking case when, and I should say, if it ever gets to yeah. trial. Okay, Laurel, now given that you and I have been covering this for three years now, why don't we just wrap things up with some final comments about the prosecution, starting with you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty obvious point that I'm about to make, and we've, we've touched quite heavily here on immunity witnesses, but how and why they are chosen and their credibility when they appear before a jury, I think were fundamental to this case and how it played out. And I think any case of this kind... Um, this is going to be a crucial point in any future case in Australia. Um, I think if a jury gets even sort of a whiff of an immunity witness lacking credibility, misleading regulators, perhaps holding a grudge over the accused, um, obviously, you know, memory lapses aside, that's a huge issue for the ACCC and for the federal prosecutor moving forward. I'd say secondly, that if defence lawyers can even begin to pick apart ACCC investigative practices um, if an ACCC officer didn't keep diligent notes or records or any at all, which we've actually heard of already in the ANZ case, then that looks pretty bad for the regulator. Look, I've got a couple of comments. There were four big winners in this uh, prosecution, I believe. The company itself, Country Care, the two accused, Hogan and Harrison, but also a person who was only mentioned in passing, a lawyer by the name of Mark Bolton, who at the time was working for a regional firm in an Australian town that I know very well called Bendigo. He was the lawyer who had drafted the agreements between Country Care and the members of the Country Care group. Um, Now, had these charges been upheld, uh, they would have no doubt raised questions about uh, the drafting of those letters and the competence of the lawyers, but the acquittal means that uh, his work and the work of his firm, which for the record is called O'Farrell, Robertson and McMahon in Bendigo, uh, that that work has uh, in fact been uh, vindicated. Secondly, we need to reflect, I think, on, on juries and competition law. I mean, how do you go about explaining complex competition matters to 12 
um, average men and women of the community. I mean, you and I have both commented uh, previously on the prosecution lawyer's summing up of the case, which lasted, how long was it? Three and a half days, right? Three and a half half days. I mean, uh, Fidel Castro, the Cuban (laughs) dictator, would have struggled... (laughs) would have struggled to speak for that amount of time. I mean, it's just hard to see. You and I think about this kind of stuff all the time, but even we found it uh, heavy going. I mean, it's, it's just hard to see how a jury could have remained focused for that amount of time. And I mean, this is a question not for the ACCC, because the ACCC doesn't run this kind of stuff. It is for the federal prosecutors, because they are the one that they're the ones that decide on courtroom tactics. And this is something for them to consider before the ANZ case, I think. Uh, and it it could I think it, it could prompt some uh, soul searching for them. But also, I was just thinking the other day, it, it could prompt some soul searching in New Zealand, where uh, you know criminal cartel offences have point. just have, I mean they've just adopted these new uh, these new laws in no small part to align the country's regime with with that of Australia, right? I mean that's that's why they did it. So now the the Kiwis need to think very carefully about how they're going to manage their first prosecution and and what they're hoping to get out of it. Absolutely. There's no doubt that they're going to have watched this incredibly closely. Now, Laurel, it has been an incredible ride. Thank you for your work on this. Good luck for next year's coverage of the ANZ case, which our American editor, David Plott, insists on calling the ANZ prosecution. (laughs) Um, So that's... uh, that's one to watch out for. There are certainly interesting times for antitrust enforcement ahead in Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. Laurel Henning is an MLEX senior reporter and she was joining us from Sydney. Laurel and I have written a piece of analysis dealing with the country care prosecution and what it means for the future of antitrust enforcement in the country. And that analysis is ready for you to read at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. And of course, our subscribers have access to the full portfolio of reporting on the Country Care Saga from 2018 until today, and there's a lot in there. And just a note for a few listeners to the podcast who in the past have been confused by Laurel's accent. Laurel is definitely from the UK, which explains why she sounds so ostentatiously British and not Australian. So there you go. Coming up, Indonesia's anti-corruption enforcer faces an existential crisis. With MLEX's weekly podcast, I'm James Paniki. Thank you for your company. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you leave a review and help us spread the word. Indonesia's respected anti-corruption agency, the Corruption Eradication Commission, or KPK, is facing a significant challenge at the moment, with its leaders set to dismiss 51 employees, including highly respected officials. They've been let go after failing a test that critics say is simply a device being used by the agency to rid itself of those unwilling to toe the line. Our Southeast Asia correspondent Jet Tomazo Santos has written a great piece of analysis on this and she joins us now from Jakarta. Okay Jet, tell us something about uh, this test and why it's so controversial. Okay, James, so this test is designed specifically for employees of the KPK. Supposedly, it's to see whether they're loyal to the state and to the legitimate government. The controversial part um, comes from two things. 
first, uh, some of the questions asked during the interview portion of the exam came off as unnecessary and even offensive. Like female employees said they were asked about their marital status, why they were still single and whether they'd be willing to become a second wife. Uh, the second controversial thing about it is the result. So out of about 1,300 uh, KBK employees, 75 failed this exam. And that list includes some surprising names, uh, like senior investigators who were responsible for sending prominent politicians and even police generals to jail. One of the most high-profile KPK investigators, in fact, um, Novel Basuedan, he failed this test. Uh, and Novel has been instrumental in several of the agency's biggest cases, so big that two police officers were in fact convicted last year for a brazen acid attack that left Novel blind in one eye. So what it looks like, um, therefore, is that this test was created to target specific people, um, ironically, the ones who sort of, you know, have more integrity. Mm. And uh, if, if that was the design, it's, it's clearly succeeding on, on that front. Now, as anyone reading your coverage uh, would know, Jet, the uh, KPK has a strong reputation uh, both inside and outside Indonesia. So, uh, well, let's start from inside Indonesia. How are people responding to, to what happened? There are, you know, locally, there are protests, of course, um, a little bit muted because of the pandemic, but there are. And um, the anti-graft activists, as well as the 75 who failed, have been trying to fight this on various fronts. Uh, they've filed complaints with the ombudsman and uh, agencies like the National Commission on Violence Against Women. They've submitted the entire test to the Constitutional Court to basically challenge whether this test can in fact be used to determine their eligibility to work for the KBK. But also, you know, something feels different this time around. Um, there's a feeling of sort of wariness among the public, maybe partly due to the pandemic, but also because um, there has been a social media campaign alongside this that's branding those who failed as, as radicals. They're being portrayed as having extremist views or being disloyal to the state. And in Indonesia, these narratives can be damaging. Internationally, uh, activists and observers are worried about all of this. In fact, OECD's anti-bribery chair, um, he meant no words in his comments to Amlex about all this, basically saying that the KPK is ruthlessly being brought to its knees. But others are understandably more uh, wary about commenting publicly because of just how political the whole mm. issue is. And how does this line up politically within Indonesia? I mean, where does President uh, Joko Widodo stand in all of this? Um, not in the place where the public wants him to. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of, of background, a little bit of history. This test was ordered by the current KPK commissioners. So um, this issue, unlike the previous ones that the KPK faced, is a little bit different, a little bit more complicated because the threat is coming from within. It's not the KPK versus some other bad, corrupt government agency. All this stems from two things that happened in 2019. The appointment of the current set of commissioners and the passage of an amendment that enabled, enabled this test to take place 
were both highly controversial when they took place in 2019. So we talked about that when it happened because at the time it was already seen as a blatant attempt by outgoing lawmakers to weaken the KPK. It's not the first time they've tried, but this was the first time they've succeeded. Uh, in fact, it was so controversial that the whole thing triggered some of the largest student-led demonstrations in Indonesia since since the fall of Suharto. And now, President Jokowi, President Joko Widodo, is basically seen as having allowed all of this to happen. You know, when Jokowi was first elected, there was a lot of hope. He was seen as having a strong anti-corruption stance. But over the years, um, he's been seen to be more pragmatic in a way, um, more willing to compromise in exchange for political support for his priorities. He does issue statements in support of the KPK, but then he doesn't really stick his neck out to protect it. Mm. So under Jokowi, the KPK has actually suffered one blow after another, all adding up to the current situation. Okay, well, let's talk about the current situation. What does all of this mean for the future of the KPK and uh, Indonesia's fight against corruption? Well, you know, in Indonesia, obituaries are being written now about the KPK. Of course, it won't really die. It will continue to exist. It will continue to investigate and prosecute and send corrupt people to jail, which we will all continue covering. But the obituaries are about the death of the KPK we used to know. You know, the KPK that was highly feared and respected. Um, what was once the most trusted government body in Indonesia. It was a law enforcement agency that the public was willing to go out to the streets uh, to defend. Um, they, there was a time the public donated funds uh, when lawmakers refused to fund a new building for the KPK. That was how trusted and respected it was. And now that seems to be gone. So basically critics are saying the KPK from now on, you know, it's just, It'll probably still um, go after corrupt officials, but maybe the smaller fish. Um, it's more likely to be compromised to look away when it comes to certain politicians or political parties or even companies. Or it can even be used to go after political enemies. So essentially, the KPK, which was born out of the reform era in, in Indonesia after the fall of Suharto, um, it's now just going to be like any other law enforcement agency in Indonesia. Uh, Jet, these are significant and uh, confronting developments for the enforcement of anti-bribery and corruption measures in Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for your work covering them. It's been fascinating talking to you today. Thanks, James. Always a pleasure. Bye. Jet Tomaso Santos, MNEX's Southeast Asia correspondent, was speaking to us there from Jakarta, and Jet's analysis of the KPK's travails is ready for you to read. Our website is mnexmarketinsight.com. That's mnexmarketinsight, all one word, .com. Just head for the News Hub tab. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time. Thank you so much for your company. Bye from me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis. See you soon.